0: hello everyone and welcome to the middle east and north africa social policy network podcast series we hope you enjoyed this episode make sure to subscribe to our channel and follow us on social media for more information please visit our website at www.menasp.com
1: Welcome everyone to our roundtable on Rethinking Inequality in the MENA, which is part of the MENA Social Policy Network Early Career Researchers Initiative. For this roundtable, we will be joined by Dr. Khalid Abu Ismail, Senior Economist at UNESCO and Policy Affiliate at the Economic Research Forum in Cairo, his colleague Dr. Vladimir Lashny. He is an economist within the Poverty and Inequality Research Team at UNESCO. And last but not least, I would like to introduce Nadim Hui. He is the Executive Director at the Arab Reform Initiative, which is a leading think tank on the Middle East and North Africa region and currently leads a consortium on social protection in the region. Prior to giving the floor to our speakers, I would like to invite uh, Dr. Anna Jawad, founder and co-founder of the MENA Social Policy Network, to give a few
2: introductory words. Welcome to everyone. Um, this event is geared towards early career researchers in principle. So again, um, It's great that we are able to use the space um, of the network to reach out to colleagues who consider themselves as being active in some field related to social policy issues broadly defined and that in some way um, we can support you and your aspirations or capacity building so please do watch this space Um, and above all thank you so much to Tamara and Noor for taking on this effort and and really putting in um, a lot of life into these activities, Um, not to mention our project manager, Olivia, who's put in a lot of work as well behind the scenes. I'll just briefly say, if you know nothing about the MENA Social Policy Network, it's a pleasure to have you here. Um, This is primarily um, a research and knowledge exchange platform um, that was established in 2012, um, focusing on social policy issues Um, defined not just as the delivery of welfare services, and I think that's probably the more predominant understanding of social policy that we tend to think of, but rather also thinking about the political space to articulate access to services and access to needs. And there are clear connections there with questions of political representation and and a lot of the issues of underpinning um, inequality that hopefully we'll talk more about um, um, today. Um, so I hope you have a chance to have a look at what we do. Um, as far as possible, we try to promote knowledge sharing, research collaboration. Um, and of course, we have a, a wide base of, of supporters and, and colleagues that, that um, follow the network activities and take part in what we do that are both from the research um, sphere, broadly defined, both in and out of academia, um, but also um, policymakers within government and within Um, international donor agencies and civil society sector so thank you again and um i hope we have a very good debate i'm sure we will and um, please get in touch if you've got questions about the network
1: thank you so much rana so without further ado i would like to invite uh Dr. Khalid Abu Ismail and Fladimir, Dr. Vladimir Nashni uh, to uh, share their points and thoughts.
0: Thank you, uh, Tamara. Thank you, Rano, for this um, invitation. Um, really appreciate it. And uh, the issue of inequality, as we all know, is um, a rather complex one. So it's it, it, it's not, um, you know, one that can be uh, easily uh, covered in, in a short space of, of, of time. Uh, so what I'm going to be speaking on uh, with Vlad is basically, essentially, the result of research that we did in the uh, uh, 2019 report that ESQA and the Economic research, research Forum did with the same title of Rethinking Inequality in Arab Countries. There are also a couple of papers that um, uh, Vladimir and myself did on wealth inequality in the Arab region um, that were published recently. And uh, uh, so I'm gonna be drawing on uh, both of these uh, papers. So basically we start with uh, a review of the inequality in human development outcomes uh, and opportunities. Again, one of the important issues here is to distinguish between these kinds of inequalities, whether we're talking about outcomes, opportunities, inequality between uh, men and women, inequality between, um, you know, uh, rural, urban, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, I'll allude in the second part to the income inequality, which has taken a lot of the debate in in the region, and particularly in in light of the uh, impact of uh, COVID-19 on poverty. Uh, With that, challenge, the COVID-19 challenge, therefore comes the need for us to invent solutions. And Vlad and I have a proposal, which is driven from the work that we did on wealth inequality in the region. Um, and we're going to conclude with uh, that uh, proposal, which is basically to create a solidarity uh, fund uh, derived mainly from uh, contributions uh, of the wealthy, uh, wealthiest desire. So um, for those of us who have been um, following the literature, Arab inequality has become the topic of uh, you know uh, a lot of debate and discussions, especially after 2010. And um, there was a lot of uh, discussion about the so-called Arab inequality puzzle. The World Bank, um, in a paper I, I think was published shortly after the Arab Spring, had um, basically put forward the, the hypothesis that the Arab region has is, is essentially a low inequality uh, uh, region, of course, primarily looking at income data. Uh, but there seems to be a perception out there that uh, the inequality is uh, very large in, in, in income and non-income space. So that I think is um, an interesting proposal, which we try to examine. Um, in, in, in our work. And our position is that it's not that simple, that the, uh, you know, the issue of inequality um, is, 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 is a lot more complicated uh, than to be, uh, to be put in, in those simplistic terms. And even in those terms, there appears to be an Arab inequality puzzle, but it's of a different nature. What do we mean by that? Well, to start off with, let's review a few stylized facts. Uh, And the first of these facts is that when we look at human development uh, progress, when we look at the progress of Arab countries in health and education over and income over the span of the last few decades, you'll see that most Arab countries have actually done quite well and most of them belong to the medium, high or even very high human development levels. Uh, Again, not including the latest environmental uh, planetary pressure, HDI, but just looking at health, education, and income. You can see that very clearly if we just look at these graphs, uh, where you can see here the mean years of schooling has almost doubled, even if we take the 1990 as a starting point and not go back to 1970. We take 1970 as a starting point. Five out of the 10 best performers in terms of global human development are Arab countries, Oman being the lead, and with Tunisia as well. So over the span of the last two or three decades, you can see that the average mean years of schooling has almost more than doubled from 3.2 to 6.9 years, just to give you an example. And of course, after 2010, some countries are lagging behind, especially the low human development category countries. Those include Mauritania, uh, Syria. Uh, unfortunately, Syria joined that group after 2012 uh, and, and or so because of the conflict situation, uh, and um, uh, Comoros and Djibouti. So it's, it's again, the, we start to see inequality and human development achievements between Arab countries, especially after 2010. That's something that I would like to highlight, that the convergence that was there from the early 70s after 2010, 11 is now, we're seeing a lot of divergence between countries This looks like a complicated graph. Uh, It's not, it's actually quite simple. And it summarizes a lot of the work that we have been doing. So on the, um, the vertical axis, you've got the achievement levels, um, and you know the higher the achievement um, you, you have uh, going up here uh, on the uh, indicators, uh, uh, going from stunting to completion rates, uh, education completion rates, or skilled attendance of birth, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Uh, uh, and on the horizontal axis, you see the progress in inequality. So if you are in the upper left quadrant you're essentially achieving average annual rates of progress on the indicators themselves so you're, you're reducing stunting you're increasing completion rates you're achieving <clears throat> lower infant mortality etc and at the same time you're reducing inequality between the rich and poor on these indicators that's where you want to be and most Arab countries are in that quadrant for example, the uh, if you look at Mauritania's uh, completion rates, you'll see that they've managed over the, the span of uh, the last two decades to reduce uh, secondary, um, uh, to increase, sorry, secondary completion rates by an average annual rate of 10% and reduce inequality between rich and poor at the same time by a similar rate. That's where you want to be. And of course, not all our Arab countries have achieved that nexus of reducing inequality and increasing achievement on all indicators. Uh, You can see in Libya, for example, on stunting, it's managed to increase inequality and reduce achievement. But for the majority of indicators, for the majority of countries, it's been a rosy picture. And especially for secondary education. So if you were um, looking at secondary uh, education completion rates and looking at the gap between the rich and poor in the earliest surveys, close to 2000, you're going to have six times the likelihood of Uh, not having completed secondary education if you were coming from a poor family. That ratio has dropped down to three if you are looking at the same data sets for the Arab countries in 2018. Remarkable achievement. Uh, And you find more or less the same levels of achievements in primary completion, uh, skilled birth attendance, infant mortality, and stunting, although to a lesser extent. Also, gender gaps, they've been closing in health and education. So I don't have the time to go into these details, but that, those are the main findings. However, if you still are, are concerned about the levels of inequality between rich and poor, despite this progress, if you look at the Global Human Development Report figures, the level of inequality, and especially in education, is still very high. And we're talking about the inequality between rich and poor, okay? So even after all of this decades long progress, you still have high levels of inequality and especially in education. And more so, if you look at the inequality in opportunities in education, in secondary completion rates, and you look at the explaining factors, you know, how much of this inequality was due to factors that lie beyond individual control like the household uh, wealth uh, level the completion rates of the the family's household head education level the gender the location of, of the, the where you live etc cetera, etc cetera. You will find that, and that's basically what we refer to as inequality of opportunities, you'll find that this level of uh, the similarity index, which measures this inequality of opportunities, is extremely high for uh, education, secondary education, and it has actually increased. And that's what we call the Arab inequality puzzle. That's the real puzzle, that you've seen these improvements in outcomes, in health and in education. But the opportunities, inequality of opportunities is still very high, especially on a secondary education, which is your pride and joy in terms of outcome achievements. So this uncomfortable juxtaposition between high levels and, and sluggishness of inequality of opportunities and quite impressive results on inequality of outcomes in this human development space is what we call in EsQ, the real Arab inequality puzzle. Okay, so the question that we put out there, is it just an Arab phenomenon or is it a global phenomenon? I don't really have an answer to that question, but I would say that perhaps that's a question that is worthy of investigation. Now I come to the second part, how am I doing on time? Okay, five minutes and then I hand over. Uh, The poverty story is also equally interesting. The Arab region is the only region where you have an increasing rate of poverty, regardless of how you measure it. You know, when you want to use $1 a day, $2 a day, $3 a day, whatever, or if you wanted to use national poverty lines after 2011, it's a story of increasing poverty. It's a story of the beginning of a shrinking middle class. It's a story of increasing vulnerability. And so that's the story. Whichever way you look at it, it's not the story from the eighties up until two thousand and ten, where you do have a relative expansion of the income income groups that we define uh, in the middle. And of course, the middle class is a very complex notion that includes income and non-income dimensions. So I would say that you know what I'm talking about here is the income middle-income group rather than the middle uh, class per se. Now comes COVID-19 and we have the shocks that that happened to household income and to national economies. And we're expecting that 16 more million people are going to be poor by national definitions in this region. So if you're looking at national poverty lines, you're looking at the situation in 2019, around 29% of the region's non-GCC population would be poor. 21, using the forecast, if there was no COVID, you would expect that rate to have gone down to around 26. Instead, we're estimating it to go to 32%. And the difference then gives you our expected outcome of 16 more million people with an estimated 116 million people to be poor in 2021. Not all countries are equally affected. Of course, we know the case of Lebanon. And we know that the situation is very different than from May 2020 when we did these estimates. So if I was looking at Lebanon, we were looking at a country that has witnessed in the span of six months, almost doubling of its headcount poverty. So we have to be mindful that this region is especially sensitive to the COVID income growth shock. And there are reasons for that, but I'm not gonna get into them. There are reasons because a lot of the population is clustered right above the poverty lines. So any small shock to income is going to result in a disproportionately high impact on the uh, economic side and especially on poverty. Now we come to the inequality story of the World Bank. And yes, it's true that the genies are low. And yes, it's true that the Arab countries on average have lower genies, than their counterparts at the same level of income. And it's also true that whichever way you look at these genies, at least up until the COVID-19, 2018, 2019 period, they have been declining. But it's not the whole story. You have to look at what's been happening to household incomes versus national economies. That's the untold stories. At the same time that we've been having quite impressive in some countries, I would say, economic growth. On the whole, household growth, household growth, which was coming from surveys that ask people what's happened to your real income. Household growth has not been growth. And in fact, the gap between national income growth and household growth is becoming larger. Now, why is that? That's, again, another paradox, another puzzle that we think might be because we're not really capturing the top tier income. Perhaps, that's one of the explanations. The income that goes to the 1% at the top that is not easily captured by these household surveys. Now, uh, the World Inequality Report, uh, Piketty and uh, others have done some work on this, and they've tried to uh, also lump together the Arab region as a whole as one country and look and re-examine Uh, the income inequality and 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 after they did their work actually it turns out that the arab region is the highest income inequality region in the world much higher than the story that we get from you know the world bank povcal database so inequality is in the eyes of the beholder and depending on which measure you use you're going to have very different results um now why again are are we concerned about this? It's not just because these figures are academic it's not an academic exercise. There is a reason why we are concerned about these rising vulnerabilities and poverty in the region. The region has one of the highest exposures to vulnerability because of the nature of economic growth, because of the lack of structural transformation, because of the fact that a big portion of the labor force went into informal low protection jobs over the past two decades. That's been part of the Arab development, economic development model. and Therefore, you also expect that that's going to be a big source of the vulnerability and the income inequality between workers and capital owners, and even between the workers themselves, between the skilled workers and unskilled workers, is going to be a big story going forward in the region. So, Um, All of this then poses the question of what do we do? And in order to answer that question, Vlad and I um, started looking and digging deeper into the wealth side of the story. If it's true that we're underestimating inequality uh, of income, possibly wealth, then maybe if we look at other data sources, we can find some interesting results and draw some concrete policy suggestions from that. Vlad, over to you. And I think you have maybe five minutes if I'm not mistaken.
3: Sounds good. So um, I will talk talk about about a very, very narrow topic. Uh, There is some echo. echo. Maybe Khalid could. uh, Uh, Can you see the slide now? But I can hear echo from myself. OK, now it's better, I think, so uh, <clears throat> so Khali uh, talked about different dimensions of poverty and inequality in the region, and he talked about uh, inequality of opportunities, and uh, he talked about uh, the different opportunities by uh, uh, people growing up in richest versus poorest households, so uh, naturally, we, we decided to uh, look into the distribution of wealth in the region. And uh, uh, because that's uh, uh, wealth is a, uh, can be viewed as, a, as an accumulated uh, stream of incomes. Uh, so to the extent that we measure incorrectly the, the distribution of incomes, we, we may hope that by looking at wealth, we might capture any of the errors because they accumulate over time. Uh, also wealth is uh, the one uh, the number one opportunity that uh, uh, people have in their lives uh, uh, the household wealth is uh, typically included in surveys we can measure it and we we see the clear link between the uh, household assets and uh, wealth and the the outcomes of uh, uh, children from those households okay given this uh, we realize uh, uh, that uh, one challenge in the region is the uh, uh, is the scarcity of data on economic outcomes especially on on wealth and uh, so um, we don't have time for that discussion but i will uh, talk ju- i will uh, show a little bit kind of what data I- uh, are available and what we uh, try to do, do with it and we have to use some uh, statistical gymnastics to uh, to with the limited data available to produce some results uh, comparable across countries over time and uh, um, uh, to make some policy recommendations uh, with that. So uh, the uh, f- the uh, starting point was well, why don't we look at the Forbes billionaires uh, data f- uh, and see how much wealth there is, uh, what's the concentration of wealth. Uh, and uh, uh, so the uh, uh, stylized fact that we started uh, with was that, well, there are something like 37 or 40 billionaires, uh, depending on the year, holding approximately $108 uh, billion. Dollars. And uh, um when we compared that at, at the regional level when we when we compared it to the rest of uh, uh, the distribution in the population we found that uh, the concentration of wealth is uh, quite uh, impressive uh, the these 37 individuals have uh, wealth equivalent to the holdings of uh, the bottom half of uh, the population, the bottom 46 percent, uh, this is also equivalent to the GDP of Morocco and or the GDP of uh, Yemen and Sudan combined. So, uh, very large concentration of wealth, and we started uh, formulating, you know, trying to uh, get better estimates of uh, the distribution of wealth by country and uh, formulating some policy recommendations based on that. Uh, so here, again, as I said, uh, data on economic outcomes and especially on wealth are very limited. Uh, so first we started with information from the Forbes uh, billionaires list. That's where we got the uh, only the, uh, that's where we realized that these data are not uh, very consistent. Um, billionaires come in, come out of the of the sample. For some countries, uh, like for uh, uh, for some of uh, the Gulf countries, uh, uh, we don't have, uh, or for Iran, we don't have uh, uh, data at all, maybe for uh, political reasons. And uh, so we had to search for other uh, data sources. Um, And we settled on a a conservative, but consistently collected source: uh, the the wealth reports by uh, Credit Suisse, which are reported uh, for countries worldwide year after year. And uh, and even though even these data have uh, uh, problems, we take it as the most uh, careful, uh, systematic uh, source to use. Uh, uh, to look at the distribution across uh, countries. So in uh, uh, columns three through five in this table, uh, uh, we we see the example of uh, data available from these Credit Suisse uh, reports. We have the the real wealth uh, per adult in each country, we have the number of adults uh, in each country, and we have the Gini coefficient, which is a measure of, um, kind of a conservative measure of uh, inequality of wealth, in in each country we don't have any other uh, information and uh, and this is where we employed some uh, some uh, uh, statistical uh, kind of gymnastics and we relied on uh, long uh, and worldwide literature on regularities in the distribution of uh, incomes and wealth across countries, and we, based on these very limited statistics, we uh, we uh, estimated kind of a synthetic, a continuous, uh, full distribution of wealth in each country. Okay, uh, 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 if you could go back one. Uh, okay, and uh, just to. So with the smooth continuous distributions of wealth in each country, we had a picture of uh, the distribution of wealth in the entire region. So um, on on the right side of the table, I will just point to uh, four statistics which are interesting. So we're looking at, for example, Qatar and uh, Sudan, we, for example, find that uh, uh, now, Now that we are talking about the billionaires versus the bottom 46% uh, of uh, uh, the population by wealth, we see that in Qatar, for example, only less than 1% of individuals fall in the region's uh, bottom half of the population, while 64%, 63.9% of Qatari population are among the top 10% of region's wealth. Wealthy. Okay. Sudan, on the other hand, we find that 97% of Sudanese in, uh, adults, or tw- uh, almost 20 million individuals, are in the bottom, in the poorest 50% of the region's population, and 0%. Essentially, nobody in Sudan is in the top 10% of the region's wealthy. Okay. Uh, Khalid, next slide, please. Uh, So constructing a full distribution of uh, wealth in the region, we find something like this. This is a Lorentz curve where we can compute the Gini coefficient. Uh, We see a distribution looking like this. Uh, The the color code is that red dots represent the least developed countries and conflict countries. A green dot are middle-income countries, and the blue dots, if I'm correct, are the uh, Gulf Cooperation Council countries. And we find that there is very little overlap across uh, populations uh, in the three groups of countries. Among the bottom 46%, we only see individuals uh, from the least developed countries. Uh, among the top 10% of uh, in the whole region, we only see blue dots, meaning those are the individuals from GCC countries. And in the middle. We have uh, uh, the thank you, Tamara. We have uh, generally the uh, the population of middle income countries. Kali, next slide, please. so the the basic message was that uh, there is not not that much overlap in the wealth of uh, uh, of population in different countries which is uh, the the message that uh, uh, Khalid referred to earlier, referring to um, uh, Piketty's research, uh, that uh, viewing the region as one country, we see these uh, huge differences between, let's say, the Gulf, the middle income, and the least developed countries. Now, w- given this, we realize that uh, uh, we would have to really talk about transfers of funds across countries uh, huge transfers of, uh, of of funds between the gulf middle income and least developed countries which uh, politically uh, are not viable uh, uh, today and so instead of looking at the regional level we really need to look at the national level how in each country, how does the concentration of wealth compare to the poverty in that particular country? So on this table, we show the the national statistics. So uh, at the top, we have middle-income countries, Algeria through Tunisia, uh, mix of the middle-income countries. And then at the bottom, we have uh, least developed countries from Comoros to Yemen. And for each country, uh, this table shows some summary statistics, most importantly, given these estimates that we've we've done, uh, we find that in the middle-income countries, the top 10% of individuals by wealth held 1.4 trillion, so uh, 1.44 trillion dollars. And that compares to, on the other hand, uh, uh, focusing on the poor population, and namely, uh, at the at the uh, at the funds that it would take to lift the poor above the poverty threshold, that's the cost of poverty gap in uh, 2019. We we found that it was only 12.95 billion dollars. So we have a, a large mass of wealth held by the top 10%. And uh, and the the cost of actually b- lifting the poor out of poverty is not that high, and uh, so one uh, kind of counterfactual scenario that we uh, we proposed: why don't we impose uh, a tax on the top 10% to? Uh, to uh, help uh, the poor, how large would this tax have to be? Well, in 2019, we found that in the middle-income countries, the required tax would be only 0.9, less than 1% of the wealth owned by the uh, richest 10%. In 2020, because of COVID, the numbers are a little bit different. So the the top decile wealth is approximately estimated at a 1.3 trillion. The cost of poverty gap in 2020 is 15.6 billion. And so we would need a tax of something like, or transfer of something like 1.2% of the wealth of uh, the richest 10% to finance the uh, poverty eradication by year. In the least developed countries, so the last minute for me uh, uh, will be that, well, the numbers are, completely different in the least developed countries. the uh, the top of the wealth distribution is much uh, much um, lighter. We estimate that there is only 72.6 billion dollars held by the top 10 percent in uh, uh, in LBCs um, compared to the cost of poverty gap in 2019 of uh, 25.7 billion. So that means that annually, if we wanted to fund poverty eradication uh, by uh, uh, voluntary transfers or tax uh, on uh, the top wealth, we would require a tax of uh, 35%. Uh, so, uh, And that's that level is unsustainable. And we find that this uh, policy proposal w- would not hold in the least developed countries. Uh, another type of uh, policy intervention is needed to combat uh, poverty in least developed countries. Khalid over to you.
0: Thank you Vladimir even though i i, I <laughs> you didn't stick to the 5 minutes i i uh, but i'll try to conclude in um uh, you know less than a minute here. So the all of this is basically leading us to one very big question um which is why isn't my slide working okay for some reason it's not Oh, there it is Okay. Which is the following. Can you continue on with the same model, the same economic development model? Can you as Arab region continue on with this frontier, uh, fast growth-oriented, um, heavily neoliberal-oriented in some countries economic development model? And the answer is, well, you can't for very obvious and even non- ideological or uh, you know um, fiscal orientation related reasons. Your debts, your fiscal space is not gonna allow you. So if you look at the sheer level of debt, the way it's been growing, uh, and the pace at which it's been growing, you can't continue on like that. Something has to give, something else has to give, okay? So this is the last slide. We can do something about it, our wealth proposal is just one minuscule, one tiny policy intervention that we think is doable. Now, can you do this at the national level? Do you need regional level support? Even take this at the global, that's another question. But uh, as we said, this is just an example, a small example of something that if there is political will, there are enough resources out there that can come together in a concerted effort to combat this rising inequality and poverty that we've been seeing, especially after 2019. Sorry for taking too long and over to you.
1: Thank you so much uh, for your talk and for giving us a lot of food for thought. Uh, But before we open the floor, I would like to ask uh, Nadim uh, from the Arab Reform Initiative to share his perspective.
4: Thank you very much, Tamara. And thank you Khalid and Vladimir for a uh, fascinating uh, presentation. I wanna, um, I should start with with one caveat. I'm not an economist. Um, so my, my remarks are not gonna be about, about the numbers or the underlying economics, but I wanna pick up where actually uh, one of Khalid's last questions, which is if there is the political will, um, and this is the question that uh, interests me the most, uh, which is, what would it take politically to do this uh, reform and particularly um, the wealth tax, which I uh, fully agree with? And in a way, when you look at the numbers, particularly for the middle income countries, you know, 1.2%, let's say it increased even a bit more, it's really nothing, right? So. Why why aren't we jumping on this recommendation and implementing it? Um, and I think it's because the politics right now in the region are not adding up. And if we want to tackle inequality, um, we're actually going to have to politicize it. Uh, and I'll get to by what I mean uh, in a second. I think if we can, you know. I think we're living in an inherently political moment, frankly, in the region, but also globally. I think in the region, it started about 10 years ago, globally COVID-19 has uh, in a way politicized um, the question of inequality. Uh, And by that, I mean, pre-COVID, most people that were interested in issues of taxation and inequality, if we were attending a seminar like this, uh, it would actually be highly technical um, and would barely elicit Uh, outside interest.
3: Um,
4: At the Arab Reform Initiative, the center I run, we had a webinar on taxation in Lebanon a few months ago. It was a full house. Frankly, I was shocked. It was probably one of our most successful webinars uh, attended by journalists, activists, and my mother, who doesn't usually care about taxation. Um, By that, I mean um, inequality now um, and I think in the region because of the uh, crisis, but increasing with COVID-19 is finally being seen as to what it is. It's a political decision as to who, who is going to contribute to the collective um, uh, good. Now, uh, and I just, just keep that thought in mind for, for uh, a second. Now, how do can we go about imposing new taxation? So if I sort of pick up, and I actually think the policy proposal of a wealth tax is essential, let's talk about it sort of at a national level. Uh, how would you go about doing it? Now, you could say, look, Nadim, I mean, tax and politics have always been interlinked, right? The no taxation without representation argument, that, that sort of has always been around. Um, And usually the way, uh, I think there are sort of two levels of thinking of the politicization of these, uh, of inequality and of the taxation question. Um, Historically, you know, uh, historically, and maybe more like, you know, two years ago, because this is how, uh, you know, the last year feels like it's been going on forever. But uh, I think historically it would have been, well, look, if you're gonna impose new taxation, you need to have some political reforms on the margin to kind of create a bit more transparency. So there's a bit more trust. So people are willing to chip uh, a bit more, right? If you want to tax a bit more, give a bit more transparency. And I think that that would have been true. uh, um, But I think clearly insufficient today, that level of analysis and that level of political reform that is necessary, uh, I think particularly for the Arab region, uh, for most countries in the Arab region, Um, is is, still essential, but no longer sufficient. Because the second layer of analysis I think today is we're tackling broader legitimacy questions about taxation today. Uh, We're living in a region where the social contract, a number of countries is completely collapsing. And um, also where the wealth concentration uh, is linked to the political economy I think uh, Khalid, I don't know if it was Khaled or Vladimir, talked about sort of the uh, rentier sort of um, economy, extractive, you know, sort of the wealthy, you know, the billionaires in the Arab world are not like the billionaires of the West Coast of the US, right? Lebanon has seven billionaires, you know, almost all of them have been prime ministers, right? They haven't invented Amazon, they haven't invented Google, Uh, It's inherently sort of capital and politics are very interlinked. But so what I'm saying is the second level of analysis of the politics of taxation is it's no longer enough to talk about incremental political reforms or a bit more transparency. The sort of discussion that is needed today is what is the vision for a country? Um, What is the uh, legitimacy that ties these people together so um, that some people would accept to pay more taxes and others, others would feel you know, inequality is a bit more uh, uh, sustainable. And I don't have an answer to that other than to say the situation is quite bleak on that level. Um, and again, I'm gonna use the example of Lebanon to show how uh, difficult it is to get even consensus on small measures. So I mean Khaled and Vladimir would know the numbers better than me, so I'm charting, you know, I'm a bit in dangerous territory here, but by most economic estimates, if the uh, political and economic elite of Lebanon had agreed to some, um, you know, form of uh, haircut on their deposit in the system, it was sort of accepted as their sort of, you know, form of paying taxes. It's another way of thinking of sort of wealth tax into kind of the greater collectivity. We could have saved, I think by some estimates, 90% of banking accounts in Lebanon, 90% of the population that had sort of dollar deposit would have been made whole. Um, the numbers were really not that uh, scary, and it would have probably required an effort by what, 100, 200 key people in the country. And despite all of this, they refused, and they blocked any reforms, and actually ended up in a, you know, we're in this sort of irrational situation where everyone is going to be made to to lose a bit more, with the exception of a few bank shareholders, and um, and no one could impose that change. So this is for me, an example of how the, the politics today of inequality are so um, important and why it's going to be such a challenge to push for wealth taxes, even if it's a wealth tax of 1.2%, which really should, you know, given how, well, how much we could achieve with it in middle income countries should be a no brainer. And yet it, is, it, is, it seems so hard these days to get that political uh, momentum. So now, um, you know, why is that? So why has it become so hard? Of course, I think we can talk about the neoliberal economic regime. Um, I mean, that's a global problem with this sort of, um, you can add sort of a layer of analysis looking at how the uh, economies in the Arab world have become increasingly dominated by sort of rent seeking behavior at all levels amongst the economic and political elites. And uh, sort of the third factor, which I just gave you an example of, is how that any attempt to kind of even reform the system, modernize it, improve collection of taxation, or try to tackle inequality is often systematically blocked by politicians uh, who are close to this uh, economic elite and sometimes are the same characters, uh, even if it just hurts their short-term interests. Even if you manage to convince them that actually in the medium to long-term, it would be in their own self-interest to pay more into the, uh, you know, collective pot. And I, I think for me, this is one of the mysteries They're still refusing to do so, um, you know, and that can, again, is this about political trust? Is this about just the, maybe the sort of economic elite um, that have developed in the region over the last 20 years, which tends to be an elite that that is uh, able to, um, you know, they're no longer really industrialists, right? I mean, it's very easy for them to, to put their money in Switzerland or uh, or uh, elsewhere. Um, so I want, I, I'm conscious of time and I want us to have time for discussion, but I want to, so how do we address these challenges? I mean, if if you agree that the uh, the diagnosis that Khaled and Vladimir made today is absolutely correct economically, that there are actually policy prescriptions that can help tackle the problem. Um, then, why? You know, what would it take to generate this political will? Um, and here, I'm going to try to to finish with uh, four uh, potential ideas. I, I start by, um, by the one which is: we need to politicize the conversation about inequality. This, is, and this isn't a moment where we can find technical solutions. We need the technical solutions, but for them to be implemented, they need to be carried uh, by political ideas and political visions. I know this might be a bit controversial, but it's clear at this point that left on their own, you know, um, even the best crafted arguments will not convince the polito- political and economic elites of doing what's right. I gave you the example of Lebanon. I could have given you the examples of Tunisia. I could give you some examples of uh, many other countries where one is baffled by the inability to uh, to do the right thing. Uh, so I think um, uh, that's one. Two, um, if again, when we talk about politicizing the conversation, you know, bringing my mother into the conversation, Uh, and thinking about inequality and and, and really creating an engaged citizenry that cares about taxation and wants to understand where their money is spent and who is paying and who is not paying because this has actually been been missing. You also need to then publicize the conversation. Uh, We need to broaden those who are listening, engaging on these issues. You know, a statistic like 1.2% is enough uh, in, you know, a tax of 1.2% on wealth is enough to, uh, tackle kind of, you know, most egregious forms of poverty should become a household number. You know, it should be something that the 8 p.m. news shows uh, lead with. Uh, people need to sort of be, be, be uh, uh, conscious of it, but that's also not enough. For this to, to work, you need social movements uh, that are also able to understand these issues, are sufficiently um, comfortable with the policy environment, know the ins and outs, are willing to engage um, with these issues and to carry them forward and to have conversations. Uh, and you know, that, that is a, um, a major challenge today, uh, in part as a result, again, of the fragmentation of social movements um, in our region, uh, the absence of you know, what traditionally would have been Kind of the leftist parties as well are, are are very weak, very divided. They barely actually uh, analyze sort of economics today. It's much more about big sloganeering in uh, in most contexts. And actually, the labor movements have been uh, either completely co-opted by uh, by you know the regimes or by uh, security instruments. So that's the second one: publicizing um, the conversation. I think three, um, and I think the presentation by Khan and Vladimir, uh, you know, talked about it, particularly with these sort of, you know, how do you reconcile the notions of inequality between when you look at the World Bank numbers or when you look at what the PKT team and others have done and so forth. And I think there is here a, a broad research agenda to better understand um, poverty and inequality in the most underrepresented groups. And I think here there's a real big space to to sort of uh, understand this. You know, when we look at data, for instance, from countries like Lebanon or Jordan, you know, how do you think about numbers? From how do you include refugees, Palestinians, and Syrians who are likely to be there for a long time? Um, how do you think about when you look at the Qatari numbers? What about the population of migrant workers who are there? How are you thinking about all these uh, all these issues? Um, I think it's going to be a really, uh, there, the, we need to really think about how do we include in our research, in our conversations, uh, some of these underrepresented groups, how do we capture them in the data um, and how do we create uh, as well spaces for them to, to to talk about the subjectivity of their uh, experiences. Uh, you know, I think one of the, um, Khalid talked about the the inequality puzzle in MENA. Um, you know, I think one of the puzzles as well is when the Arab uprisings began. Um, you know, Tunisia was supposed to be a success story, right? I mean, it was a, it was a textbook relatively success story, right? Not doing super super great, but had you know around three percent growth, I think. Um, doing much better. All the metrics were looking the up and up, and uh, sort of suddenly people discovered that there was you know I don't being a bit provocative, it's not that people discover, but that the inequality in the interior um, that people expected, but that it would find such an echo as well in the so-called well-off areas of the coast that really joined the protest movement should make us pause and think about what are we missing in our research tools to understand this underrepresentation. Um, and finally, I'll just I'll just conclude with this idea um, um, the wealthy are not just wealthy in our region. The wealthy are inherently political. Uh, and if you, you know, I give the example of Lebanon, I could have given the example of, of, of Syria, you know, the saga with Rami Makhlouf or not. Maybe if you go to the Gulf states, uh, when, you know, the shakedown that Mohammed bin Salman did on members of his family and so forth. Uh, the, 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 the wealthy are, yes, they're economic entities, but they're inherently tied to the political and security structures of the country. And I'll leave you with that thought. And herein, here here, lies the challenge of inequality in the region, that to tax those super wealthy, even if it is in such a reasonable and well thought proposal of 1.2% for middle income countries, you are going to be taxing the cousin, the nephew, the central bank governor, the head of the army, and suddenly that conversation becomes a lot more complicated and we need to be thinking about what constellation of political forces inside and outside would it take to convince them to pay voluntarily that 1.2% increased taxation. Thank you and I'll stop right there.
1: Thank you so much, Nani. Uh So yeah, we find that it is possible to close the poverty gap, but we need to think critically about the political elements uh, that is underlying it. how can you come to a solution.